I'm more optimistic than you on this one. I mean, I think a deep geologic repository is a solution for the high level waste and the intermediate level waste. Uh, and low level waste, many countries already have low level waste facilities. Uh, Canada doesn't yet, but hopefully it will soon enough. Uh, but the United States has four operating low level waste disposal facilities, for instance, and have done since the late 1950s. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Allison McFarland, Director of the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia and Chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission from 2012 to 2014. We're going to be discussing a piece she wrote for Foreign Affairs on uh, this summer uh, called in, entitled, There is Not Enough Time for Nuclear Innovation to Save the Planet. Welcome to the interview, Allison. Thank you very much for having me. Well, why don't we start with a, you know, if you could give us an overview of the argument that you made in that article, please. So in general, I'm saying there's a lot of enthusiasm for new nuclear reactors, especially these advanced small modular reactors. And I'm throwing a bit of caution into this discussion by saying, are these reactors going to be ready anytime soon? And we should really begin to look at the economic challenges that this technology faces going forward if you want it to be successful. Okay, the, you point to a number of issues uh, in your article. One of them is the, the length of construction and cost overruns. Uh, that seems to plague just about every nuclear plant uh, project that comes along. That's correct. Um, so if you look at the data that exists, that's all we have to go on for evidence and, and thinking about how to move forward. The plants currently under construction in the United States and in Europe. So in the US, it's a Westinghouse design called the AP1000, and there are two of them being built in Georgia. And in Europe, it's the EPR design by Arano, a French company, being built one in France and one in Finland. Uh, the numbers aren't good. These plants have been construction, under construction for many years. Uh, it's now taking over 10 years to finish them. And the price keeps going up and up. So the US plants, two of them were supposed to be $14 billion. And now the price most recent jump a month or so ago was up to $28.5 billion. Uh, and you know there are similar escalations in the in the French plants as well. So there have been significant construction issues around the U.S. plants in particular, and especially around the factory that produced the modules for these U.S. plants, because many of the designers of these advanced reactors uh, call on factory construction as a way of reducing costs. But my caution is if you look at the factory construction that's gone on with new plants so far, the news hasn't been good because the factory that produced the modules for the plants in Georgia 
could not get the welding right. And the plants, the modules had to continually be re-welded re at the actual reactor site. It would seem to me that if we're, uh, if we're rushing to address uh, the climate change issue uh, and decarbonize, get to net zero by 2050, then technically complex uh, projects like this would that run into issues as like you say about the welding, those sorts of things would not be the first choice, uh, you know, to uh, generate more electricity. Yeah, I mean, I certainly feel that the existing nuclear reactors around the world, or those in Canada, those in the US should stay online because they are providing carbon free electricity. Absolutely, they're essential to moving forward. But I don't think we can bank on a huge new fleet of brand new designs of reactors in the next 10 or 20 years. It's just not gonna be possible with all the challenges facing these reactors. We really don't know what the price tag is gonna be for these reactors. Well, let's talk about the levelized cost of energy because you mentioned the, the Lazard analysis. And so uh, the price per megawatt hour for a new nuclear is estimated to be $129 dollars to 198 dollars per megawatt hour and that is just about the most expensive electricity you can generate that's that's right and it's dominated largely by the capital costs of these plants and remember the capital costs are so high therefore you need to finance the costs and the the interest on financing the costs ends up being a huge part of the cost so um so it's uh it's a, this is a problem for nuclear. And it means that electricity markets have to treat nuclear power differently. So in the United States, where I know the situation best, the, a lot of the country has deregulated electricity markets. In that part of the country, it's very difficult to build nuclear power because you can't pass the co costs, the capital costs of construction off to the ratepayers you have to find that money somewhere else. Right, um, in a regulated market, you use the cost of service model where it's the cost to generate the electricity plus a reasonable return. Mm -hmm. And now when you have to compete in a wholesale market and you're competing against solar and wind and, and uh, e even uh, natural gas, I, I can see why that would be very, very difficult for, uh, for nuclear. Right, yeah, and it's, it's, it's actually difficult to compete on a regular basis now with the existing plants. A lot of existing plants in the US are struggling to, uh, to stay afloat because they're in competition from the renewable electricity and, uh, and natural gas. And those plants, you know, the renewables are intermittent, of course, and natural gas can turn off and on on a dime. Nuclear can't. Nuclear, nuclear plants have to just be on. They can't sort of turn off, flip a switch, and then turn on. It takes a long time to ramp up to be on. And what utility companies want right now is load following because of the, the enormous amount of renewables that are get going onto the grid. They need they need to do that kind of load following and nuclear plants aren't really designed for that. I want to uh, talk about a concept that that uh, was introduced uh, in 
a study this year from economist Jason Dion for the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. And he was talking about pathways to decarbonize in, in Canada. But I think this, this his little model of applies uh, outside of Canada as well. So we talked about two kinds of uh, decarbonizing technologies, the sure bets. So that would be renewables, electric vehicles, batteries. I mean, those mm -hmm. are ready to go. And his argument is, put as much of your resources as you can into those sure bets, like decarbonize your power sector, decarbonize transportation. Uh, that's, that's the first order of business. But the second order of business is what he calls wildcard technologies. And these are technologies that we're working on where some are in R&D, some are like nuclear where they're developed, but you know we've got new designs and so on. And so we, he, what he argues is, Keep investing in them because these are technologies that might come to fruition in 1930, or sorry, the 2030s, maybe even the 2040s, but they could really contribute to decarbonization. So if we looked at, at nuclear through that lens and, saw, and thought of them as a wild card that isn't going to pay off earlier, does that change your take on nuclear? No, I think that probably is my take on nuclear, um, that we should really put the majority of our effort and money into those uh, technologies that are sure bets, but that we should continue to fund these other technologies. And, and other technologies I would say would also include um, carbon sequestration and, uh, <clears throat> and storage. I mean, we really need to throw a lot of money at storage and find different ways of doing storage more cheaply. Right, gotcha. Well, let's look, if we think of then of the nuclear as a wild card, should keep uh, developing it, what about a reactor like NuScale? And I've interviewed NuScale, they're, they're pretty confident that they're going to uh, come up with a commercial design and uh, maybe sometime this decade. Uh, what's your take on NuScale? NuScale is an integral um, pressurized water reactor. It, uh, so it's, it's sort of um, similar in, in many ways to the existing plants in the US. It's a smaller scale, it's a slightly different design, it's more passive safety features. Um, <clears throat> the bottom line for all of these technologies will be whether they can compete in the marketplace. So whether they can be economically competitive. Um, you know, and there, there are other factors that we should consider when looking at nuclear and, and looking at all energy sources. And, and one of them is waste and waste production. And so my sense looking at a number of these different proposed reactor technologies is that there, there hasn't been a lot of attention to the waste end of things, um, you know, no country yet has a facility to dispose of high level nuclear waste and spent nuclear fuel. Finland is perhaps closest because they're actually constructing one. Canada's in the process of, of down selecting a site. They've got two potential sites, um, but they haven't gotten any further than that. Um, and so, you know, we do have to, to take a few other things into, into account. Um, right. Uh... Uh, I, I interviewed a colleague of yours, at, uh, a physicist at, the U, at UBC, 
And uh, unfortunately, his name escapes me right at the moment. But uh, viewer, uh, listeners who who want to check that out, Dr. Ramana. Thank you very much. That's exactly who it was. And and and, and listeners can check out his interview on our YouTube channel. Uh, it was about uh, this would be probably in October, early mm -hmm. October, I think. And he we were talking about uh, molten salt reactors. And his view is scrap it, that technology will never work. It's never been proven to work. It, and there's no reason to believe in the future that it will work. And would you share his view on that? You know, I, I think there are a lot of cautions about molten salt technologies. There, there's a lot of really interesting features to these designs, but he's correct in saying that there really isn't any experience. The United States built a a molten salt reactor in the 1960s. Um, by the way, they still haven't dealt with the waste from that reactor because it turned out to be a little more complex to deal with than they had thought. So I think we really don't understand a lot of aspects of molten salt reactors. We don't understand, of course, how much they'll cost. We don't understand maybe some of the safety issues with them and certainly the waste streams there'll be a variety of different waste streams from molten salt reactors that are very different from the existing light water reactors and can do reactors uh, and some of them may introduce proliferation hazards nuclear weapons proliferation hazards that we will certainly need to understand uh, before going forward so there, there are lots of question marks and uncertainties around these, this particular type of design because it really hasn't been built very much before. Well, let's talk about waste a little bit. You mentioned that subject uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, whenever I talk, whenever I interview uh, executives from uh, companies or utilities that are looking at uh, building these, they always tap dance around the issue of waste. And nobody ever seems to have a straightforward answer about what they're going to do, what they should do, where the technology is. And is my takeaway would be, based on that experience, that this is a problem that will dog the industry forever. And uh, what they try to do, of course, is, is to point to the, the, you know, the no, no emissions uh, virtue of it and so on. But it are, is there ever going to be a solution for waste? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm more optimistic than you on this one. I mean, I think a deep geologic repository is a solution for the high level waste and the intermediate level waste. Uh, and low level waste, many countries already have low level waste facilities. Uh, Canada doesn't yet, but hopefully it will soon enough. Uh, but the United States has four operating low-level waste disposal facilities, for instance, and have done since the late 1950s. Um, and many other countries have operating low-level waste facilities and low and intermediate level waste facilities. So I, I think absolutely there are solutions to this problem, um, but they require not just technical solutions, but political and social solutions. So People have to be comfortable with these facilities and, uh, and they have to be part of the process of siting the facilities and, uh, and operating the facilities. So, 
So absolutely, I think this will be a, a, a solvable problem, but, um, but it's a problem that we do have to pay attention to. And especially with new reactors and new designs, you have the opportunity to pay attention to design in uh, thoughtfully how to manage the waste. So when might we see these deep geological repositories? Uh, I, I've heard a mention of them for years and years and years and years. Uh, it doesn't seem like we're making much progress on them. Uh, so where do we stand in the process? So for Canada, uh, there is there are two sites that are under consideration in Ontario. Uh, and they're in final site selection for those two sites. And then they would have to characterize the sites and submit a license application to the regulator to construct a repository and then another license application to accept the, the spent fuel. But as I said, Finland is already constructing their repository. Sweden has selected a site and they're in the final stages of licensing. France has selected a site. Uh, Switzerland is down to a few sites. Um, the United States selected a site, but they, they did it in a way that did, was consent-based. And the state, the affected state, Nevada, has always objected to this. And, uh, and so they're at a stalemate situation there. Um, so I, I think it's absolutely possible to make progress. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of, of politics and, and having the incentive to move forward and the desire to move forward and solve this problem. Now, speaking of politics, uh, I'd like to get your take on the support for small modular reactors, because this is a hot topic in Canada. We've seen a number of provinces and led by Alberta uh, enter into an agreement to put resources in to develop small modular reactor technology. And they're talking about all sorts of applications. One of them might be providing uh, heat and uh, electricity to uh, decarbonize the oil sands. Um, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the oil and gas sector's sudden love of a nuclear has a lot more to do with advocating for a solution that's 10 years away. Uh, and so trying to put off those hard decisions from today than it is for actually, you know, caring whether or not nuclear ever is, uh, uh, is feasible. That's kind of my take on it. Uh, what's, what's your take? Honestly, I couldn't say. I, I don't know enough and I don't want to speculate on something that I don't know about. Well, let's talk about the feasibility of, of small uh, modular reactors. I interviewed uh, OPG, the, the uh, Ontario utility. They think they're going to have a design. They're actually going to have a plant built by uh, maybe as early as 2028. Um, maybe at latest, they think the early 2030s. Uh, is that feasible? Uh, you know, what? So it totally depends on the design that they choose, uh, the licensing process. I mean, these designs have to be licensed. Um, and then it depends on the supply chain issues and whether they have the construction capability. I mean, one thing you have to keep in mind with nuclear is that it's not like building 
oil platforms or other industrial facilities, it requires a level of quality that's very different from regular industrial applications. And this is where we run into trouble. This is where we, we see a lot of trouble occurred in the United States with, uh, with construction and similar issues in France and Finland. And so people really have to understand going into these projects, the level of requirements for nuclear are different than other energy industries. So does that matter then that uh, a country that's looking at building nuclear reactors have a supply chain that's accustomed to working to the um, yes, level absolutely. of Yes, absolutely. A supply chain, a, um, a project management, functional project management, because often in situations like in the US, you have contractors and subcontractors and subcontractors, none of whom is responsible enough. Nobody has the oversight of the entire plan and you really run into problems quite quickly. Well, this has been an enlightening conversation, Allison. I, I really appreciate it. I have to say that of all of the discussions that come up in our about around our interviews that we do, uh, probably nuclear generates the most uh, intense discussion pro and for. It's it's very polarized, uh, very polarized camp. You've shed some light on the issue uh, today. Thank you very much for this. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity.